With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. The moment after IPO, did anything like happen surrounding uh, the, the mission and then surrounding just the company's trajectory? Yeah, we had built a meaningful business on the back of both Google's monetization and its product of search, and they started to change the game. We started to lose our audience. Watching your traffic and audience and in an instance, 10, 20% of that traffic disappears, that puts a lot of pressure on your business. Pure profits went away in an instance and uh, kind of took some of the fun out of it, if I, if I will say. Two of my other co-founders from Demand, Joe Perez and Stephen Kidd, we ended up leaving Demand. But the three of us, as we sort of looked at this kind of world where we were looking at, we kind of felt like we knew what the next 10 years would look like. And so for us, we were kind of excited about something new. What we saw as the next wave, which for us had everything to do with video and how video would shape the next 10 years. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your gut. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. What you heard at the top of the episode described the end of an era. The company associated with that era was Demand Media, and it was in decline, so Larry Fitzgibbon was looking for his next opportunity. That opportunity would take form in his next company, Tastemade. Tastemade is a media company that creates content around food, travel, and design. And as of 2022, they have a whopping 300 million viewers across 200 countries. However, Larry's flair for reading markets and predicting tech culture didn't emerge overnight. Before reaching the pedestal of success, Larry experienced his fair share of mistakes, from struggling to manage a team as a new manager, to getting laid off for a good idea that was too early. Instead of slowing him down, these mistakes would come to lay the foundation of a company that combined three of his passions, food, art, and technology. And it all began in the basement of his St. Louis home. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, and uh, for me growing up, uh, hard work was sort of kind of cornerstone um, and kind of a do-it-yourself mentality. Uh, that was, uh, I think, something I learned from uh, my parents early on. And we just did tons of projects. Can you give an example? Building out the, we had a, ba in, in Missouri, you have basements, right? And so one of the things you can do is, you know, kind of redo your basement. So that was a project that um, my father and I did or... Um, you know, extensions on the house, stuff like that. But you, through that process, just learned a lot about kind of what it takes to get something done, what it takes to uh, build something. And so that was, that, you know, I kind of learned that. And then obviously I watched my parents work every single day, right? And, and that's another place where you just kind of learn what is work and what's, what is the value of work ethic. Did these skills um, ever 
present themselves as like, oh, maybe this is like a business opportunity or were there any inklings of entrepreneurial interest uh, adjacent to those tasks? You know, as a young teen kid growing up in the Midwest, right? The, the, the thing you do during the summers, you cut grass and the thing you do during the winter is shovel driveways when it's snow. And that's a way that you can, you know, make earn a little bit of income and, and put in a little bit of work. You could have a little pocket change. And that was, you know, that was something I was certainly interested in and, and thought it was cool. We tend to underestimate the big impact small moments can have on our lives. At the surface, renovating the basement doesn't seem special, but when you consider all the lessons that a first-time builder might learn, you'll reconsider. Double-checking your measurements teaches you diligence. Waiting for the paint to dry instills patience, and discerning which patterns match sharpens your eye for detail. What makes these traits so valuable is their versatility. You can apply them to all sorts of situations. Larry maximized his learning because to him, no task was too trivial to learn from. With this mindset as his guide, he would go on to have one of the most formative experiences of his childhood. There were a couple of family trips that, that seemed like they shaped some of your views around like food and, and just travel in general. Um, can you tell me like why you took those trips and, and, and what you experienced there? I, I think the idea of it was obviously just, you know, to explore some of these cities that are nearby, right? You know, Chicago for the first time, one, it was just, uh, Chicago is an amazing city, a city I still love to, to visit today. That obviously has an amazing food scene. Um, pizza in Chicago is totally different than pizza, <laughs> particularly dish. in St. Louis. <laughs> St. Louis is famous for really thinly sliced pizza. That's kind of its uh, calling card. Obviously, pizza in Chicago is much different deep dish. And going like to Gino's and for the first time and eating some of the deep dish pizza was uh, eye-opening. I know it's just pizza. Um, but it was eye-opening a, away. It was just eye-opening, just how different. You know, I know it's not like a radically different culture, but yeah, that just there was something that existed that I had never had before, right? I, I know it seems kind of odd today. I mean, this is back probably in the '70s, um, so we're going back a little bit. Um, and so, where everything is available to you all the time, and there's like zero distance and in information, or experiencing something at least visually, right, through your phone. Um, in these days, right, I had never seen that. You know, that was something that was that was new and something new to experience. And it's awesome. Food is is your, your I guess, like your stepping stone um, into discovering the the world and the depths of culture that exist around you. Yeah. So the next night was 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 amazing. Right. Because I had gone on these trips. I was a little bit young and, and there was a little bit of a choice of, you know, to, to go to this restaurant the next night, which was called I think it was called the Top of the Crown. It was sort of the the restaurant at the top of a tall hotel that, but it was like a restaurant you had to put on a suit and tie, you know? Okay, and I was so like, a, fancy. Exactly. And I remember it very distinctly. Um, I had like this amazing medium rare filet that was sort of like doused in butter. And, you know, from there it kind of set me off right there. I really understood what the, you know, how good, a, how good a meal could be. Yeah. And it's also amazing that after all these years, you still remember the flavor and the texture and the ambiance. And like, I think that just serves to, or that goes to show just how transformational a food experience can be. And this was certainly an important moment, um, like we said, for me, where um, I had a, just a fantastic meal, um, something a little bit different, you know, as I was a pretty young kid, something a little bit different than I had had before. 
and and then it became much more of like a quest. And and I think me and my family have always been on these food quests for certain. Today, I'm I mostly am on that same kind of quest, which is you know how to seek out that place that you haven't heard about, that's either high or low, that you can experience some you know some meal that you know kind of turns you on in some way. It's amazing how simple experiences can spark a passion of a lifetime. The culture Larry encountered through deep dish pizza stirred his curiosity for the world beyond St. Louis. It made him realize that unforgettable experiences are just one dish, one city, or one bold idea away. That's not to say that every restaurant in Chicago will stir you to that same passion, but it's important to identify the ones that do. Once you identify them, nourish them. You might not be able to predict where they lead, but maybe they'll spark the founding of a multinational company. Maybe they'll turn into a hobby, or maybe they'll just remain a nostalgic memory. And that's okay. Not every passion needs to become a business, but what's more important is being true to yourself and your tastes. Participating in these journeys hone your tastes. And after all, the brightest stories are ones curated by authenticity. We're going to, I guess, maybe take a, a slight diversion from the quest for food and uh, go to the quest to create tie-dye. So how did you <laughs> create this business? Yeah, I started a tie-dye business called Dimensions. That's D-Y-E if you're with a dash. Great name. <laughs> so super cool name. And it, you know, just kind of that interest in, is there some small business idea that I could put together that I could make some cash? And I think that's really what that was about. Something fun to do with some of my friends. The Kind of the coolest part about that is you learn the basics. You know, we had some, we stood up some stalls and malls and things <laughs> like that. And so we had to, you know, make friends with people walking by. And, and How did the and business kids, do? Were you selling and, shirts? Uh, we did. Yeah, we did. All right. <laughs> it was pretty short lived, I must admit. But, you know, it was like a couple of years. And uh, we. the cool part about it, and this is what I always encourage people to do when they talk about businesses, I have nothing bad to say about the size of any endeavor, because I think you can learn so much by just actually doing. And it was simple stuff, right? You learn about, you know, how to set up an entity and how to establish a bank. I mean, I know this sounds basic, but these are all fundamentals when you want to go do this for real or want to do it big. Um, just some basics around marketing and positioning and all those things I've learned from all the different kind of little experiences that I had kind of on build up to to bigger things. Yeah, I mean, the little experiences prepare you for the bigger ones. Um, yeah, and all the basics the are there too, right? Yeah. I mean, those are all things I had to do with my, my co-founders when we started Tastemade was all those same things. And so um, I think that's all that builds up and, and hopefully makes you smarter as you, you know, start to build businesses. Success is rarely straightforward. You don't start a business and become a billionaire the next day. Larry was aware that at the beginning of a quest, it was the small stuff that counted. Each skill and piece of knowledge he collected were assets that helped him reach the next stage. This mindset enabled Larry to appreciate the learning opportunities embedded in everyday situations, from painting a basement to founding his first business. It also motivated him to pour his heart into everything he did, no matter the scale. Because sometimes the value of a venture is not the venture itself, but the wisdom you gain from having experienced it. While Dimensions as a business didn't survive, the lessons it taught Larry live on to this day. 
uh, you did actually become interested in the stock market and IPOs around college. Um, can you tell me like how you got into that and, and why it drew you in? Yeah, just I think curious about businesses, how they're built, uh, how they're financed. Uh, I was just curious about investing. I think that's what really drove me to start to you know do the basic things, read the Wall Street Journal and try to read about companies and learn about different companies. And along that journey, I really did see that there were these new companies that were being created and, and IPOs and, and particularly seeing there are some benefits to being early as an investor. And so there was something that was a common theme, at least in the era I was looking at them, which were so many were coming from basically Silicon Valley. And so I think that's what sort of captured my interest, at least on the kind of finance and business side, trying just to understand how people make money and understanding that investing is sort of a, a tool that you could use to, you know, create, create wealth for yourself. And so I think it was more that kind of exploring that, trying to understand that. You know, if you get into something really early, you could really ride with it. And to me, that seemed interesting. So you had this interest. Where are you sourcing your information? Are there any magazines that were coming around like at that time that you feel like you could delve into and explore that? Yeah, on the finance side, it was, uh, this was, we're now starting to get to like maybe when I was getting in college. And now we're in the probably early 90s. And, you know, that's when like the first issue of, of Wired dropped. And I remember, you know, being at that newsstand, picking that up, you know, and it, but it was all just, you know, it was all centered around what was happening in California. And you were not in Silicon I was, Valley. I was squarely not in so, Silicon Valley. Like I imagine, like you felt like this, the West, the West Coast was calling you. Did you think like, I have to get out here somehow? I think there was starting to be a real interest in exploring what was out there. And I think that was a, a driver for me for sure. Like most entrepreneurs, Larry was learning oriented. You can see that from the way he taught himself investing. His hunger to learn actually reminds me of this quote from a film, The Dead Poet Society. Gotta do more, gotta be more. The quest for knowledge is full of twists and turns with one path branching into another and another. And business intersects with a diverse field of subjects. So it's no surprise that Larry's exploration of the stock market soon led him to the realms of art and technology. Though these might seem like an unlikely combination, they actually foreshadowed what was ahead. When I was in college, I worked at uh, Kinko's, the copy shop. And then as I was graduating from college, um, uh, an opportunity presented itself to work for the headquarters, which was based in California. It was, it was based at the time in, in Ventura. And there I had just great bosses. One is a woman named Don Graham. You know, she was she was really interesting. She was kind of ex-IBM, ex-military. Do you remember any specific experience you had with her that you think taught you one of those lessons, either about compassion or management or anything like that? Uh, this was, you know, I'm this young, kind of a little bit brash, new time manager, right? And I'm starting to interacting with different people. And, you know, some of the feedback was, I don't know if they quite called me a jerk, but it was kind of in the realm, unfortunately. I don't think I was thoughtful, to be honest. I think it was like as simple as that, or maybe I would send a short email that should have been a little bit longer or just some interaction. Maybe I wasn't as conscious as I should have been, right? And so, you know, kind of her feedback to me was, you know, your perception, maybe you're not doing anything, right? That would slight someone or not be nice or something like that. But the reality of this other person is that it is that. Like whether or not you think that interaction happened the way the other person did, 
you're not going to be successful if you don't kind of change that perception. People generally don't like to change. And people struggle with getting that kind of feedback. You know, I if it was more tied to kind of who I wanted to become and if I wanted to become a good manager or if I wanted to have uh, be a leader um, and be someone who could make things happen, I needed to adjust this part of how I how I operate. Being a first time manager is not easy. The same time you're identifying the strengths and weaknesses of your team, you're wrestling with your own as well. For Larry, his weakness was clear. He lacked the empathy to be able to understand others and their needs. Luckily, he had a mentor, and through her guidance, he grasped how to not only be sensitive to others' feelings, but also sensitive to their perceptions of him. I think this is a perfect example of how great leaders initially don't have it all together, but they constantly seek improvement. Mistakes can feel disheartening, and that's natural, but whether we let them define us or allow them to fuel our growth is up to us. We can either keep making them, or we can say, I was wrong, let me try again. By shifting perspectives, Larry chose the latter. As you went through Kinko's and and learned to uh, not be a jerk, <laughs> how did you start thinking about like your next you know opportunities or or transitioning to something else? Yeah, I would go back to um, the that started in New York, but then eventually I moved to California and I was living in Santa Barbara and I had worked there for a few years. And again, this is again putting in context, right? While I was there, like Netscape went public. Netscape makes magic cookies, among other things, principally the most popular program for browsing the World Wide Web, Netscape Navigator. And if you don't know what Netscape is, if you're too young, right, that was like the first internet browser. And so, you know, while I was there, I surfed the internet for the first time. What was like? It was crazy. I mean, to be honest, the first time I saw the internet was a guy, he was going to college at the time, and he would he did it via the keyboard, right? He was he was using the keyboard to browse the internet, but you know it was super exciting, right? This was you know you could see that the world was changing and a sort of a doorway was opening. And so, did you see the potential in that moment of like just like oh my god, or did it seem like a neat trick? No, it definitely felt like it was it was it really was a doorway, right? I mean, like the Yahoo homepage was a doorway to the internet, you know, and at the time too. You know, I kind of never lost sort of interest in media. And in that form, right, we kind of talked about kind of early days with magazines. There were magazines, there was like a, some new magazines that were starting that were sort of talk about the business of the internet. One was called Business 2.0. That was the name of it. And, um, and in there was an article about a, a new company that was starting. Um, in Los Angeles that was going to bring movies and television to, to people's homes over the internet. When you read that, what were you thinking? Well, I read it and it was like, that's what I need to go try to do. Why did it call you? I, I just thought it was so, it was kind of the merging of the two worlds that I was really interested in, right? It was technology, but entertainment as well. Larry was witnessing the birth of the internet, and with that came a special kind of freedom. There's no tech mogul to compare himself to, no definite rules or corporate hierarchy. 
But while being the first to ride a new wave of technology felt exciting, there wasn't a guarantee of success. So entertainer um, was something that you were interested, you read about. It's the intersection of video and and the internet. And um, the internet was super fast back then. I could stream video really easily, right? <laughs> not exactly, not exactly. So, tell, tell me about how you actually got involved in entertainer. Yeah. So I, you know, I read that article, I reached out to them, um, I found an opportunity and, and they were doing technical trials at the time. So it was just like one notch before true internet distribution. Um, but it was basically a video on demand company. So in like 2002 or 2003, no, before that it was nine, I joined there in 98. Okay. Wow. So it was, it was really kind of in the midst of the dot com era before the, before the bust and yeah, distributing basically it enabled people to watch movies and television on demand at their home. And there were sort of two ways to do it. One is you could do it kind of like in partnership with the cable companies. And then ultimately a, a way to do it was to make it available on the internet. And it sort of started in partnership with all the cable companies. And so I joined a work on technical trials. So I was doing technical trials of video on demand in Philadelphia with Comcast or in Cincinnati with like Cincinnati Bell. And there we were testing, you know, consumer interest um, and the technical components of delivering high quality video to people's homes um, over a connection um, or effectively over the internet. In that world, it was closed, right? Because you couldn't put that content on the internet because the, the rights holder wouldn't let you do it. Um, but that company was, you know, had great backers. It, you know, Microsoft was a backer, NBC, Intel, Comcast, Sony. Well, because if you could make that work, that's... Might be a big huge. idea. Yeah, it might be huge. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but unfortunately for us at that company, you know, when when I started doing technical trials, then I later did business development. And so I was, I was striking the deals with the distant, different distribution partners. And so, you know, yeah, the, the moment that probably had dawned on me that I was too early was as I was doing my planning for the year, really counting how many broadband subscribers there were in the United States. And more importantly, how many broadband subscribers who could accept a video stream that, you know, used as many bits as ours did. Um, and, you know, you're looking at the whole United States, right? Uh, there's hundred million, you know, at the time, probably like a hundred million cable households or certainly in the 90 millions. Um, but the people who could really take our service was like 183,000. And, and so that was pretty clear at that moment that this was a, a really good idea. It just was certainly before its time. How did you view being too early or was it, was it like an awe of crap moment? Well, one, I was, you know, I was an employee, right? I worked at this company. I was not the person who started this company. And so and from that sense, I don't, I don't know that I felt like personally attached to it. I think about that question in general of being kind of too early. There's sort of a part of the the ego that that appeals to, right? Which is, you know, yeah, I, I was too early, but, you know, I had the right idea, but it was the wrong time. I think that's okay. But, you know, being early can be being wrong. Wait, how did, how did it actually end for you? Did you leave or did the company make layoffs? Like, how, how did it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I was, well, I know I was, I was maybe like laid off the day after the layoffs, but I was pretty much laid off. That's a pretty scary moment. 
Here Larry was testing consumer interest at his dream job only to realize that the cutting edge product they were creating could only be used by a sliver of US consumers. Nowadays, it's clear that video streaming services are a gold mine. Companies like Netflix and Hulu have exploded in popularity, partly due to their innovative models and partly due to timing. There is the myth that those who make the first move in an emerging market are the likeliest to succeed. But research has proven that actually it's the improvers or those who improve others' ideas that have a higher success rate. 47% of first movers failed compared to only 8% of improvers. That's a pretty significant gap to consider when joining a company. So after Larry was laid off, he realized that it was time for a change of environment. Sure, startups were fun and bristling with energy, but they were also risky, and Larry didn't want to repeat the same mistake. As he waited for the internet to mature, he bided his time at a very different kind of business. And so moving from that, that, uh, uh, that place where maybe you thought this was, I mean, still a startup, but maybe you thought it was a little bit stable. Um, did it make you think at all? Like maybe, uh, maybe I can develop my own ideas more. Well, one, it was an amazing experience because just you, one of the benefits I think of working at startups is one of their sister can be an amazing energy, right? Because people are just excited about the idea, right? We were going to have a subscription service or we did have a subscription service that people could stream movies and television over the internet. That seemed pretty cool, right? Super I, think cool. It, I think it turned out pretty well for other people who figured that out. Um, but, you know, that's exciting. And then the people who are drawn to it tend to be people who want to get excited about things. And in our case, we just had some of this, you know, for, for, for me, certainly some of the smartest people I had ever worked with. So although you were eventually laid off, you still had that, like you knew that experience and that feeling was attainable. So how did you take that to City Search? To me, that was a great experience uh, too. And that, you know, one of the issues I struggle with, and, and this is some advice I sometimes give younger people who are about to enter the work world, is the one downside to working on things that are new that might be exciting. If they don't develop to be real businesses, you don't learn a lot about fundamental business building, right? You might learn about an idea, you might learn about a specific technology, but you don't really learn like how to make a business work. Um, and so when I joined City Search, it was an existing business. It had, you know, it was sort of the predecessor to Yelp, if you will, right? It was still editorially driven, but community could come in and, and turn, have, uh, you know, restaurant reviews and would tell you the coolest places to go and those types of things. So whereas entertainer was like media and tech, but more tech focused, this was media and tech and more media focused. Yeah. And, you know, frankly, part of the, my enthusiasm was it was actually food focused and lifestyle focused. A connection for a point for me as well of that some of that stuff we talked about earlier about kind of passion for food and that discovery and the quest. And I started to like that service just because, you know, as I was trying to, I was new to Los Angeles, right? I'm trying to figure out the best places to go. And City Search at the time was the best resource for that. It was like the infatuation, Zagat, uh, you know, Yelp all mixed into one. But what we were talking about a second ago, just about the other big benefit to me was it was a business, right? It was doing, you know, real revenues. It had uh, real customers. And it was probably harder 
It was like an interesting time to join that company. They were still, they were sort of transitioning business models. There was a lot to figure out. But for me, there was just so much knowledge and growth working both for City Search and working as part of IC because IC brought sort of a level of thinking that I thought was really powerful and, and, and just, I think, made me a better business thinker. But some of the advice that I might give someone fresh out of college is it may be cool to go to a startup, and, but startups lack structure. They don't lack, they, they lack coaching. They lack, you know, lots of business fundamentals sometimes, not all of them, but every startup's different. But going to a company that, um, again, City Search is part of a bigger company, IEC, going to something that has some structure to it, um, that there are some processes, there is some more clay to, to shape, could be more valuable in the beginning because you're going to be more inclined to learn, learn some business fundamentals, which I think will make you better entrepreneurs, startup founders later. Since Larry's first contact with the internet, he wanted to innovate and ultimately play an integral part of the tech revolution. At this moment, though, he was biding his time by developing vital business skills in a more stable environment. Working for City Search allowed Larry to cultivate his confidence and expertise slowly but surely. Armed with an expanded skill set and a clearer sense of direction, he was finally ready to start something of his own. It seems like you've had all these experiences that have given you a really good idea of how to build a business. Is there a moment where you realize like, maybe I'm ready? Now it's kind of early 2000s and, you know, Web 2.0 just started to kind of become a term, right? And, you know, you started to see some deals on the internet that seemed like there was going to be more investment, more enthusiasm, a whole new batch of companies that would be birthed. And again, I saw it as sort of that moment that I should probably take some notice and position myself, if I could, to participate in that some way. And more, this time, maybe more directly. I had met a guy along the way, a guy named Stephen Kidd, who's my co-founder of Tastemade. He's from Maine. I'm from Missouri. So we're kind of unlikely characters in, in kind of the LA scene from that perspective. At the beginning of 2006, I reached out to him and just started talking about like, hey, I think there's going to be a next wave here where big internet businesses are going to be built. We should start talking and see what, what we might be able to do together. And so, yeah, I think we got excited about it. But then we also looked and said, should we start something ourselves or, you know, would we be better to just kind of join something with traction? You know, we had never started anything from scratch. And sort of through that exploration, Stephen met a, a couple of guys, and uh, one is uh, Richard Rosenblatt, who was the, the guy who had just sold MySpace, and another guy named Sean Colo, who was a, kind of a private equity investor who was looking to start something new. Uh, Stephen met them. Um, they started telling him about an idea that they were thinking about. Sounded like a pretty good idea. The company's name is Demand Media, and it was kind of in the era of search. What was happening at the time was no one really understood how Google worked or how search engines worked. And at the time, there were all these kind of web 1.0 websites that really hadn't figured that out yet, right? Really didn't structure themselves properly and didn't set themselves up so they could be discovered. And so the idea really was, could you create 
kind of a new media company that was, you know, largely based on search, understanding what consumers were interested in, making that content available to them through media properties, and then also monetizing it through monetization that might come from people like Google or the different platforms like that. And so that's what kind of started. And Steven introduced me to the team. I got excited about the idea to work with those guys. And then we created the company. Taking small steps, breaking away from the security of City Search, seeking out a business partner, Larry was at last claiming independence. Though Larry and Steve barely knew each other, their shared hope of changing the world through technology gave them the drive to build something from scratch. They felt confident about the timing and their idea had potential. Now all that was left to do was assemble the dream team. And so I want to zoom in on dynamic. What do you think each of you brought to the table and what was the general dynamic? I think it was a good mix. Um, I really think of Rich and and Sean as the true co-founders. And then there were four other us who I kind of consider the founding team. Yeah. I mean, we had a six people, we had very different backgrounds, you know, but also complemented in some ways. In terms of the, the team, Stephen and I actually had similar backgrounds, but they were kind of different, right? So I was at the time a business development guy. That was kind of my focus. Um, Stephen was that as well. But in this case, I mean, it was a funny story about this all kind of came together. Stephen first met uh, the co-founders. He's like, okay, cool, I'm going to join. And then, but you should, hey, you got to meet this guy, Larry. He's really smart. You know, I went and met with Richard and Sean. We talked to them. And, you know, Rich is all about speed. So uh, later that day, right, he emailed me and said, hey, you know, you seem super cool, but you know, you're kind of the same thing as Steven. Like, you're kind of the same person. You know, why should you join the team effectively, right? But, you know, it was funny. At the time, I had just read Good to Great, which is a book I, I love. Uh, it's written by Jim Collins. I responded with uh, one of the concepts in that book, which is, you know, let's get the right people on the bus and then figure out where to drive it. And I think that's fundamental to all startups, right? It's how do you get the right people on the team and then figure out where to go? I think lucky for me, he responded in saying, you know, I haven't read many business books, but that's one I've read. And that makes sense to me. So yeah, come join with us. So that's, that's how I uh, joined the team and went from there. Nobody wants to hear that they aren't bringing something to the table. On the surface, asking someone why they deserve to be part of a team could sound like rejection. But when you're starting something as high stakes as an $120 million company, that is a totally valid question. Larry's response to his co-founder sets an example of what to do in similar situations. Instead of being offended by Rich's bluntness, Larry focused on pointing out his strengths and potential. I get the sense that Rich wasn't impressed by Larry's answer, but also his attitude. In validating his co-founder's concerns and addressing them in a thoughtful manner, Larry demonstrated empathy and self-awareness. He proved that he could resolve tension with grace and maturity, a hallmark of effective leadership. While first impressions can be high stakes, they don't have to predict the outcome of our relationships. By applying the lessons we learn and living authentically, we can reshape people's perceptions of us, just as Larry did. When was the point where you realized you had traction? You know, it was well-funded, right? We, so we, we raised $120 million and bought three companies. Google AdSense, which was an um, advertising monetization product that Google still offers today, was starting to really work for publishers. And then there was a notion of getting some heft, right? So we bought some companies straight away. 
So as we started to develop the business, we knew at the kind of the cornerstone of the idea was creating content that people would be looking for, right? Again, the, the mode of interacting with the internet at the time was to go to a search box and type something. And not everyone knew that or not everyone understood that that's how consumers were going to get to content. We had some media properties that they already had content. Um, but what we really wanted to test was, could we create some content for them and how would it perform? We published those and then we could see two things would happen. One is we did find audience, right? People were, you know, looking for this type of content. And then two, we could monetize it. It had ads against it and we could understand what the return on investment for that content would be. And so that became kind of cornerstone to how we thought about uh, building that business. It became kind of clear if we could figure this out, execute it, scale it, that it, we could have a, you know, a very exciting and big business. And what we were going to strive for was to take the company public. Which we ended up doing about, you know, within five years. When you get close to that, it just, it's such a motivator because you can see that there is just the end is more in sight. And so for this one, that clarity, I think, was a great motivator for certainly me and my co-founders and partners. And then it was also a great rally cry for the team, right? People could understand where we were headed and, and sort of the timeline by which we would get there. When you are striving for something for so long, there's like a now what? And that can make things complicated. And so can you tell me about the, the moment of knowing, okay, we are going to IPO. Yeah, I mean, it was really exciting. There's uh, some elements that uh, are, you know, scary because it's, it's new territory. But again, that's sort of the fun in all of this. You get to do new things for the first time. And that's where you, you get to, you know, really get to learn. We did go public on the New York Stock Exchange. And my favorite part about that experience is you know, the day that we went public, it was um, it was in January. There was lots of snow on the ground. You're walking up on Wall Street and, you know, you pull out in front and they'll skin the outside of the building with your logo and stuff like that. And then obviously, like, ringing the bell is exciting, right? I mean, that's that's sort of the symbol, right, if you will, of the of the thing. It's really fun. And then, yes, obviously you have uh, one hell of a party afterwards. <laughs> that, that That's without a doubt. Tall marble columns, the buzz of frenetic energy in the air, and of course, the bell. Going public on the New York Stock Exchange was a powerful moment for Larry and all of his coworkers. Though most of our aspirations might not end with a giant bell on a pedestal, still, it's important to take moments to be especially present in our professional and personal pursuits. What distinguishes a quest from a journey is that journeys are experience-oriented, while quests are goal-oriented. Both have their benefits. Experience deepens your appreciation for the present, while goals bring meaning to your work and motivate you to push past boundaries. For Larry, seeking out memorable experiences was a journey, while going public was a quest. But reaching the holy grail is not the end-all be-all. It's merely the gateway to the next chapter of your story. moment after IPO, did anything like happen surrounding uh, the, the mission and then surrounding just the company's trajectory? Absolutely. 
part of the power of what we did was we were built off kind of this trend in search, right? And the importance of that. The downside of that is that there's real platform risk. Today, we're seeing it where Snapchat and Facebook have issues with Apple, right? They have platform risk because Apple's changing the way in which they're you know, tracking uh, users. And so unfortunately, though, we were sort of the dawning of that. We are, are certainly a story of that where, yeah, we had built a meaningful business on the back of both Google's monetization and its product of search, and they started to change the game. We started to lose our audience. Watching your traffic and audience and in an instance, 10, 20% of that traffic disappears, that puts a lot of pressure on your business, particularly if you have a hyper, very efficient model where pure profits that went away in an instance and uh, kind of took some of the fun out of it, if I, if I will say. Two of my other co-founders from Demand, Joe Perez and Stephen Kidd, we ended up leaving Demand about a year after going public. But the three of us, as we sort of looked at this kind of world where we were looking at, we kind of felt like we knew what the next 10 years would look like. And so for us, we were kind of excited about something new. What we saw as the next wave, which for us had everything to do with video and how video would shape the next 10 years. We had some ideas, right? Like we, for us, it was a little bit about taking some time off, you know, taking it slow to kind of you know, but then we just started kind of coming into an office every day, every couple couple hours a day, just starting to, you know, pitch ideas and think about it. And that was a really fun time, right? We had gone from like having pretty big teams, being pretty stressed out, uh, doing a lot of work to, you know, kind of just taking a beat and then hanging out with each other. And so we did that for probably like a good 60 days and then really started to kind of hone in on what would be the next idea, which has turned into Tastemade. As we started to think about what we would do next, you know, kind of number one thing to be important is like, you got to love what you do, right? And so the notion of like coming to work every day, thinking about things like food, as we talked about, is already kind of a passion category for me. Things like travel, home and design, these were all sort of passion categories for us. What was really important to us was we wanted to build a consumer brand, which was very different than our last company. Our last company was kind of a collection of brands. We knew that taste was kind of essential, right? And if you could curate, if you could develop and show things and help people elevate those moments, we thought that was worthy of doing. And so that's how kind of taste got into it. And from our perspective, at least, food is central to everything. And it's really about experience. And so particularly the consumers that we were trying to reach, which were younger consumers, they don't really think of food, travel, design, aesthetic as three separate things. They think about it as one thing. And so as we were thinking about taste, it certainly, yes, it had to do with food and how food could taste, but it had more to do with taste making that could be applied to any kind of lifestyle category. And so you had a very good idea with your co-founders of this is a huge opportunity and we're seeing the trend. Was it easy to like showcase that? Well, the benefit for us as sort of founders was, right, we had just come off an at least an interesting deal, right? People who could start six people, grow it to 600. So I think we had a little bit of a leg up. That being said, we were still talking about content and, you know, platform and how those things could work together. In that sense, I think 
it maybe made some of that kind of fundraising more challenging. But as we articulated our vision around how we really could become a platform that really connects new world to kind of what we saw as this big trend of what would happen on all the social platforms, like the rise of video, and re-envision what maybe had come before, I think people got excited about it. And so, yeah, certainly we were able to get out there and raise some money, you know, reasonably quickly. So how much did you raise? Our first round was like 5.3 million. Redpoint was our first investor. I think that was really great for us because I think they had an appreciation for how this world would evolve. And then they also had just practical experience. But we were, yeah, we were pitching that, how we could be a platform to enable this kind of next wave of how media would evolve. So as we thought about the raise and just, you know, the amount, one of the lessons that we had learned from our earlier days was, frankly, not to really take risk on creating content, which is a little odd for a media company. We were really, you know, wanted to invest in our platform and team. Uh, We knew that technology would play a role in how we would reach consumers, whether creating our own products or, you know, just creating effectively the backend infrastructure for us to make these connections. And so early days, a lot of the the money was, you know, went towards product and engineering and developing people on that front. Do you think that was necessary, that tech element to raise a venture round? Yeah, there's no doubt. Again, we were smart, right? We knew that at the moment it was way too early to invest heavily on content. That's changed. At the time, YouTube was the only game in town. And so we had pretty good insights as to how that ecosystem worked and kind of what kind of returns you could expect. So along with the $5.3 million raise we did, we got $2 million from YouTube to create content. Wow, that's a great strategic partner. And so what was that content on YouTube like? Well, it was cool, right? I mean, we got to do, I think, what the program was intended to do, which was, you know, at the time, right, YouTube of that era was sort of perceived as just like people in their rooms on their webcams, right? That's what the ecosystem was. And so our vision was we could birth new networks, right? We love the Food Network. We love the Travel Channel. We love HDTV. Those are cool properties. But our view of them was... They were for a past era, right? That was going to be for older people who were watching cable television. And our view was that, no, people were going to watch video content in the lifestyle categories, but they were going to do it on these new platforms. And YouTube was the first one. And so how do you recreate that? Or how do you think about building a modern version of what we had seen before? Because it worked once, it should work again. And, and so that was really our, our quest, and it started on YouTube. With the variety of media platforms out there today, it's hard to pick where and how to build your audience. TikTok wasn't around. Instagram had about 50 million active users. And Facebook, although they had 1 billion users in 2012, they didn't start accommodating longer videos until 2017, five years after Tastemade was founded. So it was no surprise why Larry and his team decided to make their initial push on YouTube, which boasted over 800 million monthly active users. And think about the competition. At that time, it was just high schoolers uploading a video shot on an iPhone or worse. Surely a modern media company could find a home on the site too. The explosion of social media and video hosting sites in the last decade goes to show just how far ahead of the curve Larry was in 2012. He wasn't just riding the new wave of technology. He was making it. There was lots of content on YouTube, but no one was really like focused on the aesthetic. 
I mean, they were focused on the YouTube aesthetic, which was sort of like, here I am on my webcam in my room, and this is, this is what I'm doing. For us, particularly in the food category, there wasn't a lot of premium, beautifully shot, love and care put into the type of production values that we could bring to the table. And so the earliest content that we create really focused on that. Moving forward a little bit, you have all the success on YouTube. Facebook really wasn't like a big player at the time, but 2014, 2015, does that start to change? When we started the company, we our sensed was all the platforms would embrace video and that's what would create our opportunity. We, we didn't really believe that like those, all that consumption would necessarily happen on someone's website, right? That trend was pretty clear. Consumer gonna embrace these platforms. The platforms themselves would add video over time. And that if we could be there and be early and be great partners to them, that we could really build and develop audience. And then the good news too for us was that there weren't gonna be just one or two. And that same content could go everywhere. That's right. And, th and that's sort of fundamental to our approach is, you know, create once, use many. That's that's kind of the, the way we think about it. You know, we have good examples of today how we create content that may have started on a single platform. Facebook being, you know, one, we were kind of an early partner when Facebook Watch launched. That was kind of their version of the YouTube originals push. And as part of that, we developed a show called Struggle Meals. Can you tell me a bit about what that show is? Yeah, absolutely. So Struggle Meals is uh, hosted by our chef, Frankie. It's basically how to create low-budget meals, but do them in an amazing and awesome way, right? This was concepted around, okay, younger people are on Facebook at the time. Less true today, right? <laughs> <laughs> but at the time, obviously, we were kind of pursuing millennials. They were spending more time on platforms like Facebook than watching TV, as an example. And so we thought, oh, there's going to be all these kids. They're going to be in their dorm room. You know, they need cheap meals to be able to eat. They go get, you know, ramen and they, you know, making it. How could we help them up level that dish and do it for under like two bucks? And what happened when we put that show live is we found that like this content, it could be helpful to people who are doing probably more meaningful meal planning than uh, someone in a dorm. That show, though, we were able to bring to so many different platforms. The next platform we brought it to was Snapchat. You know, Snapchat Discover launched in kind of 2015. We were one of the first 20 channels to go live on that platform. And then we were able to bring it to platforms like YouTube and Instagram and platforms like that. And then ultimately to, to TV. Our vision from the beginning, again, we're a pure play video company. Our eyes were set on kind of being the modern version of what we had seen with cable television. And so in 2018, we got the opportunity to launch a 24-7 linear streaming television network. Our first partner distributor for that was YouTube TV. And so we created a version of Struggle Meals for TV. And, you know, last year, our host, Frankie, was nominated for an Emmy Award. And so that show's just been hugely successful for us. Um, it's popular on all the different platforms and, you know, reaches a, a, a really big audience each week. Moving into today and like recent years, what are you most proud of that Tastemade has done that you've done within this company? Yeah, I think for us, when particularly when we started, we really did want to create a consumer brand that people could connect with. I absolutely believe that we've done that. And that's probably been the most 
gratifying. Just when you think about when you start something out, you know, can you create a connection with consumers via your products or in our case, your products and content? I feel that every single day. I think the other thing is the company piece. It's hard to build startups and and certainly that doesn't always go well and there's ups and downs and those types of things. But, you know, we've been at this a little bit of a while now and I'm super proud of the company that we're building and the culture that we're building. To me, that's really exciting because if you want to create something enduring, one, sometimes it takes a little bit longer than maybe you expected. So I think that's patience is important. And then two, you have to kind of build something that's kind of good at the core. And that's what I feel like we're doing here, both in terms of the brand and then also the, the company that we're building. So what advice do you think you would have given your younger self to help make the journey a little bit more efficient? Yeah, I think about this a lot. And it's for people as they're going on their journey, they sometimes can only sort of bite off what they maybe think is sort of the next amount that they can do. It's amazing to see so many big companies being built by such young people, right? I think what that tells you is that if you can kind of reach a bit higher, it can kind of accelerate your learning. I think that's powerful in terms of building, you know, either building something big or building something enduring is, you know, sometimes you have to kind of suspend disbelief and not be afraid, right, to take what may feel like a bigger jump. But I think if you look around, yes, some of the people who are building these things are geniuses, but some of them probably aren't, right? They're just people who are willing to take that risk. I think there's something to be said for that. I think people be surprised of their own human potential. Embrace your potential. In life, quests and journeys aren't opposites. They're more like two paths running parallel to one another, each offering unique yet equally valuable experiences. On the quest to build something that encompassed all of his passions, Larry went from selling tie-dye shirts to working at City Search to building a food network focused on exploring culture. The scale of each venture didn't really matter. What mattered is approaching every project through the lens of a learning opportunity. I think that is something we can all learn from Larry's story. Whether we're learning from trial and error or from a classroom lecture, we can all benefit from doing it purposefully. But there's value in the meandering, often surprising path of the journey. Experience for the sake of experience can be its own reward. For Larry, food is not just an object you stuff in the fridge, it's a way of relating to others. There's a reason why the dinner table is so sacred. When you share a meal with someone, you exchange the glare of your screens for the warmth of companionship. You slow down, immerse yourself in the moment, and cherish the little things. You explore ideas and topics that might be foreign to you. Tastemade success proves that food as an experience is universal. People want to explore, understand, and enjoy it together online. Like Larry, we're all looking for that next unforgettable dish. And who knows, maybe you're just a bite away. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our chief of staff and operations is Jessica Lynn. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Irene Van Burkle, Matt Fernandez, Renee Buchanan, Sophia Donner, Maura Lynch, Zoe Maddox. Ashley Jimenez, Michael Chung, Nicholas Guzman, Aaron Devereaux, Sanessa Gisley, and Lois Choi. Our outreach and research lead is Kenny Ong, with support from Sarah Hobson, 
Melody Sopani, Cherise Tan, Jake Wiley, Ibadat Rai, and Mecca Shelton. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Abigail Azardia, Elise Caldwell, Jake Wiley, Jordan Ortiz, and Sanessa Gisley. Our design team lead is Shruti Ramanand with support from Sohail Amatya, Tiffany Dang, Jonathan Wass, and Diana Marie Candelza. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.